Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. You're listening today to my interview with Islander Karen Cushman, recorded in the studio of Voice of Vashon. Karen, thank you for coming by. It's a pleasure to be here. And so I am super excited. I have wanted to have this interview with Karen for Oh my gosh, I think it's been months we've been talking about this. And I've had your books, because you have multiple books, and I've had three or four of them for a few months now. So this interview, folks, we are going to be covering a whole bunch of different concepts. This is going to have something for the writer out there, the reader out there, the teacher out there, the librarian out there. It's going to be a great interview. I hope so. Okay, so what I'd like to do is um, ask you to sort of give a, a just a quick little introduction of yourself, just to let the listeners sort of have a sense of context, sort of who you are, okay. blah, blah, blah. Okay. We've now been living on Vashon for 14 years. Before that, we were in the Bay Area mm. for many years. Um, I came late to writing. I started when I was almost 50. Before that, I taught for 11 years in a museum studies program at John F. Kennedy University in the Bay Area. Before that, I raised my daughter, and before that, I worked for the telephone company, uh, where we were not encouraged to tell stories, which was hard for me because I had always been a storyteller. Uh, I started writing when I was five or six years old, Mm -hmm. still have a lot of those pieces, um, songs, stories, jump rope rhymes. And when I was a little older, I wrote a play about Santa Claus going down the wrong chimney on Christmas Eve and winding up in a Jewish home. It's called Jingle Bagels. Oh, Uh, my God. How old were you? Oh, 11, maybe, something like that. Yes. Uh, At 12, I wrote an epic poem cycle based on the life of Elvis. I never thought about being a writer. I didn't know anybody who was a writer. I didn't know any adults who wrote at all. Um, I thought that I would um, uh, be a school teacher or a librarian or on my uh, more optimistic days, Elvis's wife. I wrote because it felt good, that that was something that I was allowed to do. I could let out feelings. I could mourn. I could be angry. I could ventilate. I could do all of these things that I wasn't supposed to do in my real life. Mm-hmm. So I wrote all during um, elementary school and high school. But after college, I didn't write anymore. I think it was intimidating that I was competing with all of these fabulous mm-hmm. people who were writing. Mm-hmm. And um I used to say, oh, I used to write really well for a teenager, and now I write really well for a teenager, but I'm in my 20s, or I'm in my 30s, or 40s. I had lots of ideas, um, and I would tell my husband, listen to this, I have a great idea for a story. And then I I would tell him, and that would be the end. Um, Nothing else would happen. In maybe 1998, we were on vacation, and I woke up with an idea in my head. And I said to him, listen to this, I have a great idea for a story. <laughs> and he said, you've been saying that for 25 years now, and I've never seen a word written on paper. This time, I refuse to listen. Oh, good for him. But I'll read it yes. if you'll write it down. He's a psychologist, in case people couldn't tell from that, from that little I was tidbit. Waiting. I was like, <laughs> yes. okay. Yes. Uh, 
Indeed. So he handed me a notebook and a pen, and he closed the door of the uh, little cabin we were staying at, and I wrote down what turned out to be uh, a seven-page outline of Catherine Called Birdie, which was my first book. Right, right, right. And once I had something on paper, I felt more committed to it. I wanted Mm -hmm. to see what happened to this girl, uh, how she um, handled this world she was living in, in uh, how it all turned out. So for the next three or four years, I worked on it. So that was how my first book came upon me. That is such a brilliant story. (laughs) Oh, okay. And I didn't know that yet. I didn't even really know. That's awesome. That's like, that's just inspirational, I think, for every person out there who feels like, oh, well, you know, that musician got started when he was 19 Mm -hmm. and that actress got started Mm -hmm. when she was 21 and I'm 39, so I obviously missed the boat. Why would I even try? Every time I speak, a couple of women, always women, come up to me and say, I am so inspired. Thank you for saying that because I'm about to turn 50 or I just turned 50 and I haven't written anything and I really want to write. And I say, maybe you were too young. Maybe Mm -hmm. you were too busy. Maybe you had six kids and a part-time job and a husband, you know. But um, when the time is right... If you want to do it, you will do it. Something will happen. Yeah. But they're just so happy to hear that you don't have to start publishing in your 20s. Right. Yeah. Right. Or you don't have to have been constantly writing That's right. quietly That's right. for 30 years. That's right. Becoming a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you literally took a break from writing for I did. time. I did. I took a short break of what fifth form was 40 some years. Right. 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 <laughs> Yeah, okay. and it worked out for me. Well, there you go. So mm. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, all about inspiring people. There you go. One reader, one listener at a time. Mm-hmm. I hope there's some inspiration out there on the airwaves and on the Internet waves. Um, if you're listening on the radio and you um, come in partway or have to leave um, partway through, you can always go to voiceofashon.org and then check under the Shows tab for Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. You can listen to this show and every other show I've done. They're all archived right there easy to find so that's always something i like to remind people about okie doke so today these are my notes from when we were hanging out this morning and you write for an age group that's currently called middle grade right and it used to be called young adult and there's been a shift and i would love it if you could sort of explain that just real briefly so people understand that category. I think there was always something called middle grade. I don't know. They, sometimes they called it um, chapter books, different mm-hmm. things. But what goes into each category has shifted. When I started out with Catherine Colberti and The Midwife's Apprentice and even uh, The Ballad of Lucy Whipple, my third book, they were considered young adult. Mm-hmm. And I didn't change. I still write the same way. I still have a main character who's about 13 because someplace in my heart, that's how old I am. Uh, <laughs> but the readership has changed, apparently, because what is considered young adult is much heavier, more serious, mm-hmm. uh, has more to do with romance, dystopia, death, mm-hmm. uh, terminal illnesses. Oh, right, like all the faults in our stars. All of those, that's right. All of those. Right. They are much heavier, and so they're came this category called middle grade, which is like sixth grade to ninth grade with a year or so on either end. Our story, middle grade stories, can be as meaningful, but I think are not as downbeat. Mm -hmm. They don't end unhappily. 
or you know even happily, but somebody dies. Mm-hmm. That doesn't usually happen. The characters, I don't. I, I was going to say, are a little more innocent, and, and that might not be the case. But they are not involved in sexual situations, mm-hmm. in a life, usually light, serious life and death situations. That they're a little lighter for these little yeah, younger people. Yeah, it does seem like young adult is brilliantly attractive to the adult community as well. That's right. Whereas I would say, yeah, the, so the middle grade, because right now I think technically young adult, they really want your character to your protagonist to basically be about 16. 17 is okay, 15 is okay, but really they're aiming at 16. And middle grade, like you said, is more like the 12-year-olds and the 13-year-olds. I mean, on Frank, how Mm -hmm. old was she when she wrote her diary? I think she was like 13. Right. She wasn't real old. And you mentioned a couple of other great, um, that one author who you said was brilliant. Oh, Lori Hulse Anderson. Say that name again. Lori Hulse Anderson. Okay, yes. got it. And, and she wrote she's, about... She's written a number of books, but my favorites are two of a oh, trilogy, I keep hoping for the third, mm-hmm. called, let's see. Oh. It's okay, two of a trilogy. <laughs> two of a trilogy yeah. about African-American kids in, in the Revolutionary War, which right. was a fascinating take on a history, a subject we think we know so well. Right. Yeah. And so she's coming out from a, an yeah. angle that's been less illuminated. That's right. Yeah, all of Brilliant. her books, I think, are that way. Okay, so... Now so, there, there's a new category that they're just coming up with uh-huh. because apparently middle grade and young adult and adult aren't enough. Now it's called new adult, which yeah. for people who are think they're a little old for young adult, why they don't think these kids can go and read adult, I don't know. So it's... Um, uh, New adult, and that again is more sexual and you know, disturbing. And often. I'm not sure it's going to stick. I was um, my novel. I was expecting would probably probably be new adult because I'm writing. Well, I want to mm-hmm. specifically focus on the college age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, my novel has people of all sorts of ages, and it's all over the planet. But the idea was that high schoolers, in a way, have a bit of a limit on the areas. The subject matter that they're interested in. I mean, you know, sex is usually a new and exciting um, territory for someone who's in high school, whereas once you're in college, oftentimes it's familiar territory. Mm -hmm. And so there were ways in which I feel that when I talk to high schoolers, they're starting to open the door on the adult world and they're blinking their eyes. When I talk to someone who's halfway through college, they're their feet are in the adult world. Mm-hmm. They're out there in the front yard, and they are, they're in it. And so I went to a writer's event last summer, I think, and I raised the question about that. And the people who were there, it was a bunch of agents and different people in the industry, and they said that new adults seem to be dying in early oh, really? death. Because young adult, when you look at Hunger Games and other books like that, it's already trudging right into yes. college-age material and adult. And so new adult may end up not actually living. I don't know. It's, it's like in flux right now. I think it was a, a term and a category come up with probably by marketing departments who were oh, afraid that yeah. older high school students and young college students wouldn't want to be seen shopping in a store 
with a young adult wow, section. Oh, that's that, interesting. Right. So they wanted to do these books that were, in, in a way, just a little further along than young uh-huh. adult, uh, but not put them in the adult section where they would get lost with the millions right. and millions. But I think that was a marketing decision. That would make sense. Yes. And we'll it, see if it, if it goes. That's enough. right. And marketing drives the bus often because yeah. it, your book can be the best book in the world. And if it's not marketed to the right people, if the right people don't find it, then uh, it's not going to go anywhere. I had a really great interview with Garth Stein. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And he so he wrote um, about Enzo, mm-hmm. the dog, yes, right? the art yes. of racing in the rain, and, and a couple of other books before that. And he has another one that just came out. And one of the points he made about Enzo and the art of racing in the rain was that he calls up his agent after having given him this manuscript. And the agent basically said, you know, it's narrated by a dog. No one's going to publish a book that's narrated by a dog. <laughs> I can't sell a book that's narrated by a dog. Go throw this book in the trash. Do me a favor and write me something I can sell. And Garth's response, he says to me, well, two words popped into my head. And he's like, they're not the words that I can't say on the radio. (laughs) He said, you're fired. And a number of months later, he, you know, like seven or eight months later, he's at an event. He's been trying to find a new agent for this book, which was his third book. And everyone's like, I love it. I love it. Blah, 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 blah. But I don't know how to sell it. It's narrated by a dog. And then he's at an event, uh, one of the fundraisers for King County Library. And he's meeting with all these other authors at the Mm pre-dinner. And he's, they're going around a circle. And he says, you know, I'm really frustrated. I've got this book. I think it's a great book, but it's narrated by a dog and I can't get anyone to pick it up, you know? And this guy across the table lifts his head up and says, well, you should talk to my agent because my book is narrated by a crow and he was able to sell it. So Garth sends this book to that agent and like 48 hours later, the agent calls him up crying on the phone and says, my God, you have to give me this book. And of course it spent what was it? Like a couple of years, years. on the New yes. York Times bestseller yeah. list. I yeah. mean, it's it's this brilliant, yeah. brilliant story, which has touched so many millions of hearts. He just needed an agent with little imagination. And that agent obviously needed to know how to intersect with the marketing department. That's right. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. he had to come and say, not only is it great, but here's how you market it. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's the business side. <laughs> um, you have, um, to give people a sense, folks, there's a whole bunch of lovely books and you can go to Karen's website if you want to get some more information about the ones that we're not going to have time to talk about today. Additionally, there's a Facebook page that has content added to it. Now, this young woman who runs it for you, is she part of the publishing company? No, she's a, a, a person who does social media management, they call okay, it. Okay, brilliant. And, and so. she's in Minnesota. Nice. Yes. So she uh, finds content related to my books and researches it and puts it on the Facebook page, which is fantastic. Right. Like you were saying that, so this book, The Loud Silence of Francine Green, this one is talking roughly about what was happening in the 1950s and right. with sort of the um, the blacklisting of people and all the, the fear-mongering in mm-hmm. America and the anti-Soviet and, you know, and all that. Okay, so she, you said she went out and she found authentic historical information sort of right. about what was going right. on and mm-hmm. wrote an article about that. Or she would publish a link to um, a film 
a documentary film about nice. the uh, uh, the era, and then the next week she would have interviews with people, and then the next week right. she'd have a bio of Joe McCarthy or something. Right. But all of these things that are related that are so helpful to teachers yes. who are using the book in the classroom. And homeschooling parents. And homeschooling parents, yes. yes. So yeah. that's what I was going to say, folks, is the, the Facebook page. What's, what's, is it just Karen Cushman? It should just be Karen Cushman. It, right. it could be Karen Cushman author, but I think they tried to get rid of that. Got it. Okay, folks, I know you're savvy uh, enough to handle yeah, this. So go yeah. to Facebook and look up Karen with a K and Cushman with a C, C-U-S-H-M-A-N. And what's brilliant is that because all of these are historically based, they are sort of like little windows into these different times. And so, yeah, if you're homeschooling your kids, uh, girls and boys alike, uh, what's the one? Um, the one that my son read? Will Sparrow's Road. So some of the protagonists are boys and girls. It mixes up. Okay, so I wanted to make sure to mention that. Okay. On Facebook, you can you can right. explore and my, so much. And my website is karencushman.com. Right. Obviously. Exactly. Okay, Doke. So um, you write in middle grade, and you have three books that are based in the medieval world, three books that are based in California during slightly different, over about a 100-year yes. window. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Th- two books written in the Elizabethan era. Right. And you have been, you have one book. The first one was a Newberry Honor. A Newberry Honor. Catherine Colberti was given a Newberry Honor. Right. Yay. And then The Midwife's Apprentice was meddled, was the Newberry Medal book of that year. 1996. Yes. All right. Well, why don't you briefly tease the writers on the island who want to continue to be published authors or become a published author, give us a little bit of a teaser about how glorious it is to <laughs> it is um, go through the Newberry um, Honor and Medalist experience. I usually um, uh, equate uh, winning the Newberry Medal with um, the Vatican choosing a new pope because it's <laughs> not like there are nominees or people in, in uh, on a short list or a long list. Mm-hmm. There's nothing said. It's completely secret. And in oh. Rome, uh, when there's a new Pope, white smoke goes up in the in the um, chimney. If there's a uh, not a new pope elected, then the, a black smoke goes up in the chimney, and so you just have to wait around for white smoke so to each appear. Day, they, smoke they, at the end of the that's day. That's right. They take out. ballots and they burn them. Um, <clears throat> So after I wrote Catherine Calberti, my husband kept saying, oh, you're going to win, you're going to win, because he's an optimist and because he's incredibly (laughs) supportive of me. Uh, And I kept saying, no, no, it's my first book. They'll never do anything. Um, So we went to bed um, the night. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Yes. It's your first book. How is it that you're even thinking about the Newberry at this point? Because well, I knew that there was such a thing, and I and he knew there was such a thing, and he had just decided that I was going to win it. So everyone who writes in the middle grade, no, any book, uh-huh. adult as well. They're not, not usually um, uh, adult books. Okay, they're books for children. Often a, a young adult, though there is now a special category for young adults. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they can't also win the um, the Newberry. And as I okay. said, this year, Last Stop on Market Street, which is a picture book, mm-hmm. won the Newberry Medal. And that oh. doesn't happen very often. Okay, so you so he's just basically saying randomly, you published right. a book this year. Right. You're an yeah. awesome woman. I love what you do, and you're going to be Newberry. That's you're right. like, honey. <laughs> so we okay. went to bed not knowing that the Newberry was going to be announced the next morning. And it's announced um, at 8 o'clock in the morning. 
usually on the East Coast, which is New where York. The, that's, it can be anywhere in there. It's at the Midsummer Meeting of the American Library Association. Oh. It's usually on the East Coast because that's closer to where all the publishers are. Right, exactly. Uh, and it's announced to the press at 8 in the morning, and they like to talk to the authors first and tell them. Which means we lived in California, and uh-huh. it means it was 5 o'clock in the morning when the telephone rang. Uh-huh. And Philip picked it up, and I heard some voice go, wah, 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 and he said, do you know what time it is? <laughs> and the person said, wah, 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 wah. and I said, well, who is it? What is it? Is yeah. there a problem? And yeah. he said, it's some librarian. And I said, give it here. <laughs> So he gave it to me. As he's grousing about the That's time right. of day. That's right. He gave it to me, and the person announced that it was indeed the American Library Association, and Catherine Colberti had been named a Newbery Honor Book. Aww. Well, we were very excited, but he was humiliated that he didn't handle that any better. Oh, we'll have to put... So he said next year, Uh (laughs) because I had already written The Midwife's Apprentice, he said next year it's going to win the Newbery Honor. I mean, the medal. medal. And I'm going to answer the phone, and I'm going to do a really smooth (laughs) job. So the next year we knew when the... the Newberry was going to be announced, right. and he was sure I was going to win the medal. And I said, they're not going to give me anything. You can tell who's the pessimist right, in the right, family. Right, right. I already won the honor last year. They're not going to do two in a row, blah, blah, right. blah. So we went to bed, and he put the cordless phone next to his side of the bed, Aww. and he practiced sitting up and answering in one smooth motion. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> So that he would do. He has it. a great sense of humor he too. Does. Apparently, he does. Yes, oh he my does. goodness! So the next morning, the phone rang at five, five oh five or something. He reached out and got it, and he knocked it off the bedside table and it went under the bed. <laughs> so he's under the bed trying to get the phone. I'm screaming, "Get the phone! Get the phone!" As if, if I don't answer, they'll say, "Well, hell with her. We'll right. give it to somebody else." <laughs> So finally he came out black with smoke. <laughs> black smoke. Finally he came out with the phone in his hand and the midwife's apprentice had won the Newberry Medal. So we jumped around and cried for a while and then he went and got a bottle of champagne that he had hidden in the refrigerator. He was that certain the book was gonna win. Of course he's been certain every year since. Right, right. <laughs> it right. hasn't happened. But he was right those two times. Wow. And winning the Newberry Medal does change your life. First of all, I got flowers from probably twenty five people across the country, which is wonderful. Uh, bookstores, especially children's bookstores, but most big bookstores have a section of Newberry winners, right. and, and they stay in print forever, and the bookstores keep them on the shelves. Right. I spoke on television and uh, on the radio and did some um, films, kinds of filmed interviews, and I haven't had any trouble selling my books mm-hmm. ever since. Mm-hmm. So it does um, make a, a big difference. But the most important thing was that I thought of myself finally as an author. Mm-hmm. I wasn't just somebody who had written these two books, mm-hmm. you know, that I thought of myself as an author. This is what I do. Right. It, it took me a couple more before I quit my day job, which was um, teaching at this museum studies program. But finally, I was able to do that. And that meant after a couple of years, we could move away from the Bay Area, which we did right. and came here. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Yes. So so that's when you win the Newberry, those of you who are listening, take a lesson from Phil. You know, if your phone (laughs) rings at five in the morning, it could be good news.
and maybe duct tape it to the wall right. so you're not going to sit up and knock it under the bed <laughs> so your wife's screaming in the background while you're trying to get it. There you go. That's hilarious. I love it. Better. I'm, that's much better than if he had succeeded at his Oh, yes. Hello. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, this was the Sorry. best way to do it. Yay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I imagine there's a bunch of people right now who have just pulled over in their cars and then whipped out their little notebook and they're scribbling down the thought they have about this book that's been percolating in their head. And they are like, I'm going to do it. So you go, people. You go do it. And you know what? Most of you who want to write a book or already working on a book, you've got a message that you want to get out there. You have something to say, because if you didn't, you wouldn't be writing anything down on paper. And so one of the cool things about what you've done, Karen, is you have managed to succeed at this thing that's really sort of hard. Everyone out there has probably read the book where you get into the second or third chapter and you put the book away because you just read a three-page rant or lecture from the author via the voice of his character. And you just realized that this author is basically going to be up on a soapbox through the entire book. And that breaks the... um. What's that thing they say when you're watching a movie? Third wall. Well, there's a third wall, Mm -hmm. yeah, but there's also the um, suspension of disbelief. You know, like, la, la, I'm in a spaceship and I'm out there and suddenly I'm being lectured at about something that sounds like coming from a talk show host, you know, or something like that. So um, your stories, especially in the middle grade, where it's so important because as a society we really want to offer insightful stories to youth at that age that can help to guide them, you know, forward in a way that's that's more enlightened and more ethical, more self-aware. I mean, we're really loving our children at that age and trying to help them. And all of your stories have a real message and a and a and a a goal sort of that you had for the readers, but you don't do that horrible lecture thing. Mm-mm. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> Could you maybe go through and say, you know, this one I was curious about exploring this issue and this one. I wanted to help people think of that issue and okay. pick like three or four of your favorite to highlight. And let's make sure the loud silence of Francine Green is the last one. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, first, I'm going to do my little Lego talk Ooh, because yes. that's how all this comes together. I'm always asked by young people and very often by adults, where do you get your ideas? Right. You know, how right. does a story come to you? And I was trying to think of a way to explain this to a group of fifth graders. And that I would thought, be 10-year-olds, folks. <laughs> okay. And I thought about an example of little pieces coming and putting them together. So uh, because that's how ideas come, a character over here or a time period or values or that I want to talk about or a problem, something, all of those things come and they are coming together before they're a fully formed idea. So I tried to think of an example of that in the physical world and I thought, Lincoln Logs. Well, these kids had no idea what I was talking about. I knew what Lincoln Logs are. Um, I loved them. (laughs) Tinker Toys. They didn't have a clue. Not a clue. So brilliant. 
Legos, then they got it. Everyone gets Legos. A Lego is just a colored block. If you have one Lego, you have a red colored block, and that's all. But if you put a yellow Lego and a blue and more reds and wheels and do all of these things and put them together, you can make a car or a, a house or uh, the, uh, an entire village of uh, mm-hmm. buildings with Legos. And that's the way I think ideas come. Alchemy and Maggie Swan, which is one of the Elizabethan books, the whole idea started because I was reading something about alchemy, which is the transformation of base metals to gold, which was supposedly one step on the way to finding the secret to eternal life. So I thought, what if there was this man who was an alchemist and he had a daughter because it had to have a you know a, mm-hmm. a young person character. Mm-hmm. So what would she think all about this? And she gets really in, she's sent to live with him. She gets really involved. So why why was she so involved with alchemy? Well, alchemy is about transformation. Maybe she wanted to be transformed in some way. So I thought, well, what does she want? Curly hair or you know mm-hmm. better clothes? What? I thought, what if she had some kind of serious physical problem? And she thought if her father found the secret to transformation of Material things, he could transform her and Mm -hmm. cure her. Then I thought, well, in the Middle Ages, if she, what she has is bilateral hip dysplasia, which means that she walks with this funny lumbering walk and needs a cane. And I thought if she was in the Middle Ages, they they thought that most illnesses and especially deformities, so-called deformities, were punishments from God for evil or uh, meaning that you were in league with the devil. And I didn't want that to come up. So I had to find a time period Mm -hmm. where her problem couldn't be cured Mm -hmm. because they didn't know how to do that yet, but where it wasn't considered by everybody to be a a sign that she was evil and was being punished by God. Mm -hmm. So then... The alchemy, her um, hip dysplasia, and the time period, and I picked London because there's so much information about Elizabethan London, those Mm -hmm. things all came together there. And I wanted to talk about a a girl who was not perfect, the way we all are not perfect. So that was another one that came in. Um, She had been raised by a grandparent and was sent to live with a father she had never met. So she was angry and unhappy and not very likable at first. So that all of that Mm -hmm. went in. And still she was able to, uh, to change and to grow. So all of those things were like Legos where they came together to make this story. Right. And I think that's the way the stories uh, um, come together. The Midwife's Apprentice, I had no idea what it was going to be about. And that one is, that's, all, that's the medieval. That's a medieval one. Right. It was. Oh, that's the one that won the Newberry Medal. Right. And when I um, started, I had just the title. I had it written on a piece of paper in a drawer for, I'd say, a year I, because I didn't know what the story was about. But I liked mm. what it said about learning, uh, which is apprentice, and midwife was birth. So those were two Legos that came in there. And I didn't know anything else. And then I had the image of this homeless child sleeping on a dung heap because as the uh, as a those of us on Vashon know, we, we rural types, those city types mm-hmm. often don't know it, as the um, material uh, rots and turns into compost, it gives off heat. Oh, yeah. And it's soft. So mm-hmm. there she was burrowed in the um, dung heap. So it gave me a place to start. There was this child who had nothing. She was called Brat by the populace. She was homeless. She had no name. She was hungry. She um, longed for a place in the world. And even starting from zero there 
Mm-hmm. As all of these pieces came together, she was able to grow into um, a person with a name, a full belly, and a place in the world. Right. Yeah. So that's how things come together. It's not, oh, I'm going to write a book about, well, I can say that now because all eight or nine of my last books weren't like that. But Catherine Calberti came to me all of a piece, almost right. in a dream. So I have to stop saying that that's not the way it works. Once Sometimes, it worked yeah. that way with all yeah. the other times, it's just these different Legos coming together and building a construction. And then as I write, I change out the Legos. No, this one doesn't work. This one lets them have this instead. Right. So that's the way they work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, let's see, for the California trio, there's... I thought it'd be really cool if you could actually talk a little bit about the orphan train. Oh, and okay. And then we'll jump into Francine. Okay. Uh, from, I think, 1850 to 1920, there were these projects called orphan trains where homeless or orphaned children were taken from the slums of big cities, mm-hmm. um, first to the south and then out west, looking for new homes for them. Um, sometimes it turned out the children were not homeless or orphaned, but social worker decided they'd be better off with another family. Right. Um, families were often split up. People found out much later that they were Jewish or they were Irish, uh, but those orphans weren't taken as more as red so that they were sold as uh, Swedish <laughs> or whatever was oh my was uh, uh, yeah was um, more adoptable. Wow. Um, so I wanted to write about the orphan trains. I saw the picture of a train on the cover of a nonfiction book in a bookstore, and there was this enormous locomotive and this line of tiny children with little cardboard suitcases, mm-hmm. and their faces looked so brave and so frightened. And so hopeful all at the same time that I knew that there would be a story there. So I went in search of um, Rodzina. I'm not sure how to spell the the name. And she's a writer on the orphan train, and she's unwilling to go, um, but she's unwilling to be taken. However, she's unwilling to just stay on the train forever, and what she figures out and how she finds a home is the story. My um, father's family is Polish, and as I was growing up, I always thought my great-grandmother's name, first name was Rodzina, Rodzina Chedvinsky, mm-hmm. because my grandma would take us to the Polish cemetery, and she would sit and cry by this tombstone that mm. said Rodzina Chedvinsky, and I thought that was my great-grandmother's grave. But it turns out um, that Rodzina is the Polish word for family. So that this grave site was uh, the burial plot of the Chedvinsky family. Oh. But instead of changing her name, I left it because I thought in a book that's all about the search for family that it was a good name for her. Even though probably no children were named Rodzina, just like we don't name children family. family. Yeah. Uh, I thought that it was a really good name and that it really told you what the story was about. And well, I put that you... story in the beginning of the book. Oh, so there's the personal story there. Yeah, so the pe- people who read it know that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, if you think about Ellis Island, I mm-hmm. mean, there were so many people who, you know, I speak English and you come in from some other country mm-hmm. and they would just hear the person pronounce it and they would rewrite it. That's right. So I could actually see that as being a name. Why That's not? Right. Because That's there right. could be a translation confusion. That's right. Next thing you yeah, know, somebody could have yeah, yeah, I'm part of the Chedvinsky family, and they would, you know, right. and they'd write it down in Polish. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the orphan train. Like, I've never even heard of that. I'm really glad you wrote about it. I had no clue you that, can, that even happened. You can go online and look up 
the orphan train. There's an orphan train riders association where uh, a lot of survivors of the orphan train and their families come together because the last train ran in 1920. Mm -hmm. So that we're about to lose the last riders and their stories are so important. Right. Uh, A number of places throughout the country, mostly from Chicago West, uh, like Nebraska and not the Dakota. So it must be Minnesota and some other places. It's part of the school curriculum because mm-hmm. they were stops for the orphan train. So oh. they had people actually in their community who were orphan train riders or descendants of. So they've made these curriculum units yeah. about yeah. Um, the orphan train. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, actually, middle school history, because they always have the local piece about the state that you live in. Right. So like I spent, let's see, one year of middle school was in California. So during that year, I was picking up on the California history and the natives and the, um, you know, the missionaries and the disease and all that, right? But um, the previous year, I'd been living in Reno, Nevada. And when you live in Nevada, you learn all about the Donner Party. Right. And, if, right. you know, if I had been in California, I never would have learned anything about the Donner Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, actually, you could probably, like, make an entire study of, you know, the unique aspects of each state that That's is right. taught to the children that live in that state. That's right. It's There's, part of our culture, I you know, know, and we are products of our culture, and we also develop our culture. You know, right. it's a two-way street, so that... Um, we remember helps to create what That's we right. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. All right. So I'm going to remind everyone really quickly that you're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, the show where authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. My name is Marge Twisdale. I'm speaking today with Karen Cushman, and she has been an Islander for about 14 years, has a number of books. We are having a great time today. If you want to catch what you missed, you can go to voiceofvashon.org and catch the beginning of the show there. And if you want to catch up on some of these books, Karen is lucky enough, Karen Cushman, um, Karen with a K, Cushman with a C. She has a lovely woman who manages her Facebook page for her. And because all of these books, which are written for middle grade um, genre, they all have a historical component, either medieval or California history or Elizabethan. How do you say that word? (laughs) Elizabethan. Elizabethan. Elizabethan Mm -hmm. era. Because of that, she goes in and she pulls real concrete, interesting pieces of history that have to do with the storyline. And so if you're a homeschooler or a teacher or just a parent of a young kid and or as someone who loves history, you can go there and get all these amazing sort of additional side perspectives and stuff. She fleshes out the story. Yes, basically. that's what she does. Oh, context. Okay. She puts in the context. Oh, my husband always is saying it's about the context. I'm like, yes. Mine too. <laughs> <Your husband. laughs> we should get them together sometime. <laughs> okay, so um, so we are at, well, we're doing really great on this interview. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about Francine Green and also Grayling's song. Great. So let's see here. The Loud Silence of Francine Green. Why don't you give a quick little intro to the story? All right. Here's the first Lego. I had a friend whose father was a screenwriter in Hollywood and was blacklisted. And they went, and for a year, I mean, they left. And for a year, they lived in motels in the desert before they went to New York, where he wrote Mm. under uh, a different name. And I thought that that would be fascinating for kids who had no idea 
about the blacklist or about the uh, House on American Activities or the Senate mm-hmm. on, Amer- on American Activities committees, mm-hmm. all of that. So that was really the first Lego. And because I knew the girl, I thought, well, it's one thing for the father to go through this or and even his wife. But what about for the children? What right. was it like for the children to have to do this? So I came up with the idea for Francine Green, who had a friend named Sophie whose father was a screenwriter. And Sophie was outgoing. Sophie was a troublemaker, always stood up for what she thought was right and pushed for it. And Sophie was always in trouble at school. And Francine Mm -hmm. was quiet and introverted and for strange reasons became friends with Sophie. And through her friendship, Francine learned not to be Sophie, not to be like that, but to uh, believe that there were some things that were so important, um, you had to stand up for them, even if you got into trouble. Right. One of the reasons I was really attracted to the loud silence of Francine Green is because I think, you know, historically in a largely patriarchal planet, women are oftentimes endangered. They speak up, so voice are often just pushed That's out right. just because you're female. That's right. And then if you're a child, That's right. um, you know, um, you're oftentimes literally a second-class citizen. I mean, there are obviously countries where parents can murder their children and yeah, get away with yeah, it. With, yeah. No one even complains about yeah. it. You know, family honor is more important than the life of the child. So we have all these pieces going into this, feeding into this. That's and right. then you're bringing to light the fact that we have in our history... I always look at history as like a playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about football, um, they have a playbook and they'll open it up and they'll say, okay, so we've studied the history of all these football games and we know that in this type of a situation, there's this percentage of a chance that they're going to choose to do that. And literally the science of of trying to predict the next play in football is massive, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, so I always look at history in general as the playbook of life. You know, that if people are making billions of dollars on football, but paying attention to history and using that to predict the future. Why are we not looking at history and trying to do Absolutely. the same thing? Absolutely. History is um, losing um, a lot of its importance and its place. I talk to kids all the time who say, I don't like history. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't pay any attention. Mm-hmm. But um, Francine's story, as relevant as it is to her time, a time when um, people were frightened. Uh, Russia had devo- uh, China. China had developed an, um, an atom bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, it was believed that the communists wanted to take over the world, and they were in, in China and in Russia, and mm-hmm. some said in Hollywood. So everybody was fearful. The thing to do when when you're fearful at that time, given their context, mm-hmm. was to shut up, to conform, to be quiet, to back off, and let the bullies take over. Right, and and um, the bullies uh, in Congress developed these um, these tools, these committees. Uh, a book called Red Channels, in which everybody who was suspected of being a communist or having communist leanings mm-hmm. or joined a group that they thought was too left wing, right, were listed. And executives at um, movie studios and at radio programs, all of these people right. knuckled under to the bullies, and these people lost their jobs. Right. That was there's a movie called Trumbo. Out I just looked it up right yeah, now. That, that real is yes. really interesting uh, uh, about that period, and I thought that this would be a good period in which to have Francine knuckle under herself. 
yeah. to the bullies at her school, um, her parents who wanted her to be quiet and conform, mm-hmm. and so that she was getting it from all sides. And it was very courageous of her, though mm-hmm. she didn't think of herself as a brave person, to finally say, there's something I have to stand up for. And that's right. when Sophie gets in trouble. And, and Francine has to um, uh, make some sort of a statement about how unfair she thought that was. Well, and it's interesting that when all of that was happening in America in the 50s, that's a decade to a decade and a half after we watched the same behavior in the European That's continent. Right. And we watched, I mean, you know, the stories of, you mm-hmm. know, the, the lone Jewish man who would show up in a small town and say, I have seen what they're doing. You mm-hmm. need to flee. You need to leave. Right. And everyone in town would say, no, no, mm-hmm. no. Our German neighbors couldn't That's do right. that to That's us. Right. We'll just sit here, you know. And, I mean, we saw the negative impact of powerlessness through fear and mm-hmm. letting bullies take over. Mm-hmm. And then... Ten years later, it's happening in this country during the 50s. And now I know so many people who will jokingly, but they Mm -hmm. mean it, Mm -hmm. say, well, I'm not so sure I can go research that topic because then probably the NSA is going to realize that I was Somebody's looking at atom bombs right. or this or that, and that's I don't right. want to get put on a list. So we're like using all the verbiage that says we recognize mm-hmm. there are people in the government who will spy on our own people, who will track our actions and what we do, and that our access to information can be mm-hmm. used as a weapon against us to put us on a list, just people yeah. who then are at risk. Yeah. You know, it's like this is the book the children write now. Yeah. If they can read this, it's brilliant. In the early 40s, there was a category called premature anti-fascists, which means they were people who were against Germany and Hitler before everybody was. And they were suspected of having communist leanings because they were premature uh, anti-fascists. So their their book, their playbook was this Red Channels thing. Oh. Um, then after that, it was um, Hoover's um, uh, FBI files right, that right. were finding out he had these incredible files on mm-hmm. all sorts of people from uh, movie stars to Martin Luther King and mm-hmm. to ordinary people. Yeah. That was their playbook. Right. Yeah. And it was not used for positive effect no. in the country. And it was misused right. because that's right. One of the things I often tell my children or in conversation, I'll say, you know, the thing we have to understand about humans on planet earth is that whenever a place of power develops you know there is there is a position of power there will be a few truly good moral people who have the ability to not cave Mm -hmm. you know there will be a few strong good people Mm -hmm. who will consider going to that place and maybe doing good Mm -hmm. but there will be a flock of bad people to use a simple Mm -hmm. term who are drawn to that because power will allow them to get what they want and so every time a position of power comes up we must be on the alert for the wrong people who are going to want that that's right and to see what messages they are giving us about yeah. strangers and immigrants that was the same thing in Nazi Germany about somebody who knows what to do who has the truth who has the one way to do something right. or fix something all of these clues yep. should come to us yep. when we're looking around and what's happening right now in that's 2016 right. that's right yeah, and 2015. we just saw the big short I want 
everyone on the island to go see Absolutely. this movie. Absolutely. <gasps> about how the banks wow. and eventually the government colluded yep. about this um, subprime mortgage failure and the recession it led to. And the only people who lost money were the government. No. The bankers? No. no. The big banking institutions? No. There were those little families in Las Vegas that were struggling to pay for their house and mm-hmm. owed more than they could sell it for. Right. So I think it's really something to see. I just, we left. It's like just. a giant vacuum cleaner was just spread all over the country and basically all of the the wealth of the middle class and the edges of wealth that the lower classes were starting to have mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. some sense of security yeah. about, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really an instructive movie to, and very entertaining. Well, and I'm I'm so impressed with the actors that are in the movie, the people who produce the movie, because what's really brilliant, if people, there's a myth out there of, well, they didn't know. Right. That's right. <laughs> and people, these, these, these people, people knew. They knew exactly what was going on. They were not confused. And they said, yeah, they dismissed yeah. it. Yeah. Either they dismissed it or they literally were like, well, you know, we like it the way it is. This is good for us. So <laughs> we will profit it. by it. Yeah. Right, right. So then these people said, well, we're going to prove that we were right. And that was when they did that thing technically called or casually called betting against the American mm-hmm. economy. Right. By doing Short that, sales. they were able mm-hmm. to prove when they won, mm-hmm. they were able to prove that, that they had actually really been there predicting it and trying to fix it early on. But only two of them at the end, I forget how many there were, maybe 10, let's say 10 involved. Uh, Only two of them expressed any sort of moral hesitancy about doing this because they got very rich off of what they did. The others just were happy with having made this money and making fools of the banks. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. Anyways, okay, so yes, bro- The Big Short right. is a brilliant movie to see. Trumbo is the one that's about Hollywood screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who um, was that big giant movie that he actually wrote? He wrote Roman Holiday. No, there was another one, though. The big the one. Bra- ben Hurt. No. No, no, no. Was it just Roman Holiday? He, well, he rewrote a number of movies. He wrote um, something called The Brave One, which I've never seen. And he wrote Roman Holiday after. He was blacklisted, though, and he had to use somebody else's name. So somebody right. else got the Oscar credit for Roman Holiday until right. like 20 years later when, uh, you know, it was a, a well-known secret that he had written that as well as a couple of other movies. Um, right, right, So right, it was right. much later that it came out. Once, right. Once we started to fear, I don't know, started to fear immigrants instead of communists. I don't know. We always have to have somebody to be afraid of, I suppose. Right, right, right. Okay, so it says here it was Kirk Douglas, producer and star. Oh, Spartacus. Yes. Yes, Producer Spartacus, and star right. of the Oscar-winning 1960 epic Spartacus, who's acknowledged to have finally broken the blacklist. Right when he insisted that Trumbo's name appear on the opening credits as the sole writer of the film. So what had been happening is he had been forced to write under a pseudonym mm-hmm. for many years. And, and so all these people didn't realize that these great movies that they all love so much were being written by this person. And he wasn't the only person to do no, that. A lot, no. of, a lot of them did that. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I'm super excited. So that's Trumbo. Mm -hmm. And I think that's already on like my Netflix list or something like that (laughs) of, of, you know, movie to get. Okay, so we are just about done. And you have a new book that is coming out in a new genre. I do. Grayling's Song. That's right. And it's a fantasy. It's sort of a gentle fantasy. You might call it 
medieval with magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the points I wanted to make, I had been reading a lot of fantasies because maybe I should do something different. They're all historical novels about young girls who conquer the odds. Or boys. Or boys. One about a boy. That's mm-hmm. right. So I was reading a lot of fantasy and they depended on magic. Right. And I wanted to write a book that's about magic, but the thing is that magic doesn't work. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't mm. fix the situation. That it turns out that Maggie uses her wits and her common sense and these companions that she picks mm-hmm. up along the way to solve the problem. And I wanted uh, young people to know there isn't magic. Don't depend on magic. You're not mm-hmm. going to wake up different tomorrow or things aren't going to be different. Magical right. thinking, in other That's words, right. can really slow us down. That's right. No magical thinking that you use the gifts that you have, you know, your talents or your in- intuition or your intelligence or, uh, as I said about uh, Maggie, her common sense. And you don't have to be perfect uh, mm-hmm. or courageous. You don't have to be. Uh, we were talking earlier about the main character from The Hunger Games who is, of course, the strongest, prettiest, smartest, toughest person, and that's how she happens to win the Hunger Games. You don't have to be that. You can be an ordinary girl like Grayling, who is unsure of her abilities, whose mother calls her names sometimes because she's not tough enough, Mm -hmm. who doesn't know what she's doing and sort of making it up as she goes along, but who has the ability to hear our mother's grimoire, which is a book that right. it can be a book of magic spells, but right. for a wise woman, is a book of recipes mm-hmm. and chants mm-hmm. and things like that. She has the ability to hear it singing so mm-hmm. that she's able to lead this, this um, group to find it and to solve the problem. Right, 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 right. You have to be not Katniss Everdyne. You have to be who you are and be the best you that you can be with your, you know, your faults and your limitations and all of your um, abilities and skills. Right. Yeah. So that's very much what it's about. It's sort of medieval in its um, texture. It's kind of in that kind of time period. A time period. And right. uh, because I wanted some people to believe in magic and some people not, and for them to um, encounter people who wanted to use them. For, mm-hmm. for different kinds of purposes. Right. So, And because it's a place that I'm comfortable researching and writing yeah. about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, Grayling's Song. That's right. Um, and it comes out on June 7th, That's 2016. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, wow, Karen, this has just been so much fun. Good. Good. I enjoyed it. And that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Karen Cushman. Thank you for tuning in to Prose Poetry and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And honestly, Karen, I think you're just all over that. Like, <laughs> Good. It's like, Good. bam. For those of you who live on or visit Vashon Island, you can drop by the Vashon Bookshop and flip through a display copy of The Loud Silence of Francine Green. If people are wanting to take a look and, and flip through a few of these and maybe chat with their kids about, you know, how empowered you can be as a young person um, during the spring, summer, and fall when the farmer's market is running on Vashon Island, you can always drop by by the local Vorlit booth and browse through a whole bunch of books that are offered by local authors only. Okie doke. Thank you, March. Yes, thank you very much. And I will leave you all now with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana.
Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. You enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone your fevery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You can't divide us into sides and from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale 
The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do Bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many, you are the few.